Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we're looking at an exciting new film, One Night in Miami. Season 6 of this podcast has been all about 2020 films, some streaming gems and other award season favorites. The interesting thing about this year is that some of those movies fall into both of those camps. Uh, that is, they're expected to win big this award season, and they're easily available to stream. That's the case with today's film, which hit theaters on Christmas Day, but will be streaming just a couple weeks later on Amazon Prime on January 15th. You may be familiar with Regina King from her acting. She won an Oscar for her part in If Beale Street Could Talk, and she recently starred in the incredible Watchmen series on HBO. This film, One Night in Miami, marks her first time behind the camera for a feature, and she came out swinging, pun intended there, because this film focuses on legendary boxer Cassius Clay, as well as the other prominent historical figures, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm X. When Cassius Clay unexpectedly won the title of heavyweight champion of the world on a night in February 1964, he hung out afterwards with those three people. And this film imagines what that night might have been like. Screenwriter Kemp Powers is a lover of history and wrote this screenplay with a sense of respect for each of its subjects. I'm joined again by film podcaster and programmer of the Arkansas Times film series, Omaya Jones. If you're not familiar with Omaya, He's appeared on this podcast many times and is just amazingly knowledgeable and insightful about movies. So it's always a treat when he can come by. Welcome back to the podcast, Omaya Jones. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Staying sane in quarantine, uh, are you? As best as possible. In quarantine, it's just been a weird period because I never really stopped working. I can do a lot of work over the phone. I also have an opportunity to go outside at least once a day because I have to walk my dogs and things like that. So. I haven't experienced the same claustrophobia I think that a lot of people have. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think that too, I'm I'm kind of a homebody anyway. So like, there's a part of me, like obviously I wish I could go to movie theaters and, you know, not have to wear a mask at, when I go places. But uh, there is a part of me that's like, more home time? All right, sounds good. Um, but also I have children and uh, it's exhausting <laughs> Because they, uh, we're homeschooling now, which I love and I'm enjoying. But I'm uh, getting lots of good family time. But also, I don't have as much me time as I used to. But that's okay. Um, anyways, I was going to ask you, what have you been watching lately? Yeah. So lately, I've been watching a bunch of different stuff. There was a period of time when I kind of got away from watching things as mm-hmm. much as I had been earlier in quarantine. Yeah. But the past couple of weeks, I have dived into. Steve McQueen's Small Axe series that's been on Amazon, and I've seen three of those. Nice. And everyone, like, the all the hype around Lovers Rock is real. Everyone should watch that immediately. They're all worth watching. Some of them are fictional. Some of them are historical. So um, yeah. it's just, like, a really fascinating series of things. Last night I watched, or to back up, like, this week I've watched three things. Last night I watched The African Queen which I think might have been Bogart's last movie, not one of his last films. And then two of the movies that I've watched this week were both Sound of Metal. So nice. I watched it Monday and then I watched it again last night. <laughs> nice. So that's at the top of my list to watch probably next. I'm going to maybe tonight uh, or tomorrow try to watch that. It's highly recommended. I highly like I, I want people it's on it's streaming on Amazon Prime. And I had seen some hype around it and I didn't know anything about it going in. Hmm. Except that if you look at the cover image, it's a guy, a shirtless guy playing drums. And so I knew, so metal was like a reference to the music or something, but it's so much more than that. Um, But I want people to kind of go in cold because I think that's the best way. The lead actor, Riz Ahmed, was on uh, Fresh Air this week. So after you see it, that's an interview you can check out. He's also been in a bunch of other stuff, like he's been in Girls. He was in... Yeah, I knew his name. I recognize his name for sure. I'm going to pull up. Go ahead, though. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think what else he's in. But he's he's been around for a while. It kind of reminds me of... Like, I hope he kind of breaks out. And it kind of yeah. reminds me of... If you remember way back when the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern came out. I don't know if you saw that or not. But one not. of the actors in that that you may or may not recognize was Taika Waititi. And it really? was before he had kind of broken out. Yeah. So, yeah, Resume, he's he was in Venom, Rogue One, 
Oh yeah, he's in Rogue One, and then I recognize him from uh, Nightcrawler. Oh yeah, he's also in the Sisters Brothers, which I I watched in the past month or so. I haven't watched that one yet. So that's been one that's been on my list. Uh, Well, what I've been watching lately, I was going to mention Small Axe. I've only watched Mangrove, the first one, but I really loved it, and I'm looking forward to diving into the rest of it. Uh, I think it it would make for kind of a long podcast episode, but maybe you should come back and talk about Small (laughs) Axe in a few weeks if you're up for that. But um, I can recommend Mangrove. That's as far as I've gotten in it. I've watched a handful of things. I watched Eyes Wide Shut for the first time. I'd never seen that. And uh, I'm in a a little Zoom movie club, and that's what they are doing this week since it's sort of a Christmas (laughs) Christmas adjacent movie. And, uh, yeah, I really liked it. I'm still kind of processing it. But uh, I knew a lot of the kind of the crazy stuff that was in it. So I was able to kind of more focus on, I don't know, the character and, 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 like, I don't know the kind of what it's saying about marriage or, or what questions it's asking about marriage, I think is interesting. So I'm still working on that, but yeah, I really uh, enjoyed that. Uh, I watched the new Steven Soderbergh, let them all talk, which I thought was really like a, a lovely little movie. It's, it's kind of, um, yeah, small, uh, but it's, it's got really great performances from, from Meryl Streep and uh, Candace Bergen and, um, I'm trying to think of the other actor. I'm blanking on her name right now, but it's kind of three older women. And then it's got uh, Lucas Hedges in it as well. And yeah, I thought that all all well acted and um, just a really, really well done uh, script and and everything. So I'll recommend that that's on HBO. I'll mention a couple other things. I rewatched the favorite from a few years ago, the the Yorgos Lanthimos, and that one really held up for me. I I saw it in the theater and I hadn't seen it since then. And uh, yeah, it's really good. Great performances. Uh, again, great script. I th- his, his directorial decisions are really interesting. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll re-recommend that if anyone hasn't seen that. Um, and then I'm still watching through Bergman stuff. Um, I have the Bergman set now, which is exciting, so I can watch all of it. But I'm trying to kind of watch through the major ones and then go back and watch everything. So my next one up was Cries and Whispers, which completely blew me away. So, so amazing. Um, yeah, so I'll recommend that as well. You have any thoughts on any of those? That's, that's a lot. That's been, I, we haven't done a segment like this in a few, a few weeks, so that's a few weeks worth of stuff for me. Yeah. So the Eyes Wide Shut is the only Kubrick I haven't seen. Ah. And so just now I just made the decision that I'm going <laughs> to rectify that on Christmas Day. I've decided. Ah, there you go. Yeah. So, um, and of course, Tom Cruise is in the news for yelling at... <laughs> yelling at some people on set and and it completely justified you know yeah it's the only one of the few times there's been a tirade by an actor (laughs) where the majority of the reaction is positive or in their defense yeah Mm -hmm. right like I, i haven't seen a lot of people criticizing tom cruise for going off on crew people for violating protective COVID protocols yeah yeah, it's different than like the Christian Bale thing a few years ago where he just yeah. like freaks out at the light guy for no reason. <laughs> yeah, this was a little more just right. I saw, I think it was a variety or something. Had a The headline was, be honest, you kind of agree with Tom Cruise about this or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen the new Soderbergh yet. I'm interested in that. I, you know, I watched the last one he did. I think it was a lot. He does, he does so many things so quickly. <laughs> yeah, I haven't it's hard seen the to last few. Up. When I saw Meryl's face on it, I was like, yeah, I should watch that. There's a there was a profile or something on, on him where I think they were talking about the process of editing Unsane. And so, you know, he now he famously shoots things with iPhones with yeah. all these different filters and technology and things. And he's also edits on the go. So like as they're shooting, they're editing. And there was a story where they're at like the rap party, I think it was for Unsane. And after a few hours or a couple hours into the rap party, he says, like, you guys want to watch a rough cut? And he just like cut, you know, just finished oh the film just right there. That's wild. And yeah, it's like a real DIY thing. And he also, I know like with the Nick, he shot a lot of that himself too. Um, and we don't have to go into it. It's just weird. No, that's, that's that's just did he do HBO let them all Max. talk on an iPhone? I'm looking to find out if he did. I don't know. I don't know. But it's funny. If you watch High Flying Bird, there's a shot where even if you, if you went in not knowing that it was shot on an iPhone... If you if you're just thinking about the way the shot works, you realize like something's going on because the tape the phone or the camera is on a table, and it's just a shot that you could not get with a conventional camera. Huh, interesting. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Have you seen Cries and Whispers? I have not. It's good. I recommend that one for sure. I think it's uh, Bergman's first one in color, 
which was interesting and it's got a lot of bright colors and uh, I have the Criterion disc so I watched all the special features and stuff and it's, it's interesting stuff. So yes, that's that kind of went quickly to the top of my, my favorite Bergman movies. But All right, well, without further ado then, let's get into One Night in Miami. You brothers, you could move mountains without lifting a finger. Uh, Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. Uh, Who's the greatest? You are. That's right. Jim Brown takes uh, the ball. Your record is going to stand uh, the test of time. All together, yeah. Uh, the entire city of Miami is celebrating. I'm the new heavyweight champion of the world, and I don't even have a scratch on my face. Oh, my goodness. Cash. Cash? Why am I so pretty? <laughs> Hey, congratulations, champ. I could get used to that. Uh, I was made in America, land of the free, home of the brave. This movement that we are in is called a struggle because we are fighting for our lives. This ain't about civil rights. They ain't giving black people what they really want. What's that? Hey, I was made in America. That's why I'm out here saving America. Power. Black power. I like the sound of that. Uh, I wish I lived in America. We have to be there for each other. Uh, heard everybody rich. All I gotta do is run, jump, kick. I'm a kid in your area. Uh, I done made it to America. Uh, I'm amazed at America. Welcome to America. All right, let's talk about One Night in Miami. So this is set in 1964. Tells the story of four men who are also celebrities, uh, who have become pretty hugely significant in just in American history. Uh, that's Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. Uh, they really did celebrate together after Cassius Clay's uh, huge unexpected boxing victory in 1964, uh, in which he became the heavyweight champion of the world. And so this film follows these four men as they um, just their conversations, what they're doing as they're they're spending time together. Um, and this is directed by Regina King. It's her directorial debut, and it was written by Kemp Powers, uh, who's a playwright before this. Um, and so he imagined what they might have talked about on this night and, and created this this fascinating dialogue-heavy drama. Uh, so that's kind of the setup of this. Um, I want to talk first about just Regina King. I think it's it's interesting that this is her first movie. She's obviously such a great actor, won an Oscar for um, uh, If Beale Street Could Talk a few years back and uh recently was in Watchmen that we discussed Omaya I think she is obviously a tremendous actress and I think she does a great job here as well do, do, what is your impression of her uh her directing skills here yeah I think she does a phenomenal job I was reading an interview and she talks about how one of the reasons she chose this script in particular was that since it's all on the page in terms of like the character the voice mm. she could really focus on the visuals mm, yeah. and I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage because we saw this, I think, in October. Yes, we and, watched this at the uh, drive-in so at the same yeah. time, so it's been a, been a few right, months, yeah. but yeah. But I know, like there, there's like a shot where during the title bout, there's like an overhead shot of the of the the ring that's where they're fighting, mm. and she does a lot. It's weird because you know this is it's adapted from a play, and so one of the things that always comes up when you're adapting something from a play is how do you make it cinematic? Yeah. And at some point I realized what people mean by that is like changing locations. Mm -hmm. So like another example of a play that was adapted to a film was like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm -hmm. And you can do a lot just to make it, the film feel bigger than it is uh, when you're sort of opening it up from a play. And she does a really good job of that. Just like staging to have them go from, the interior of the hotel room out to like the rooftop to mm -hmm. the parking lot and you know just getting characters moving around in really interesting ways and yeah it's hard it's hard to talk about visually because it's been so long yeah i agree this but, is one i yeah. definitely wish i had been able to revisit uh it's gonna be streaming before too long but um yeah but i, I agree i think you know as far as like movie making a stage play feel cinematic I do think she does a great job. I remember the first time I had a sense of that in a movie was the movie uh, Doubt with Meryl Streep, mm -hmm. again, Meryl Streep um, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, which I really like that movie, but I did have a sense like this feels kind of stagey, uh, something about the the way the dialogue, dialogue worked and, and there's not a ton of locations. It just, I was like, 
this, there, there could have been maybe more done here. You know, I want to criticize doubt, but um, I think here someone might watch this and have no idea that it was based on a stage play because, uh, yeah, I think there is enough variation there. There is a, obviously a lot in, in one location in that hotel room. And actually, so I, I found, a, as I was just researching Kemp Powers, there is a a short YouTube clip you can see of the stage production with all different actors. Uh, but the, the set is interesting because it's, it's in the hotel room and yet above them like around the edges of the stage, there's like a second floor motel, like, like outdoors of a motel with all the doors. Uh, and like almost like it's looking down into the room, which is interesting, but I can imagine they, they use that creatively, uh, on the stage. But so I thought that was an interesting thing. And maybe that can kind of transition into Kent Powers because he he wrote this. And um, at the screening, the Arkansas Cinema Society screening you and I got to go to, um, there was a Q&A with him afterwards, just like a Zoom recording. But it was really interesting. And uh, he talked about just kind of being a, a history nerd uh, and, and having a feeling a connection to each of these four people. And then kind of one day happening across something that he was reading that they actually, these four were together that, that night. And he, like, there was a mind blowing revelation for him. And, and he kind of felt inspired to then kind of imagine what that would be like. He also mentioned, uh, speaking of Regina King again, that he assumed that, um, Regina King would have someone else, you know, kind of adapt it for the screen and, and take it, take it away from him basically. And he was okay with that. But then she just kind of was like no i want you to do it and and he thought that he was kind of surprised by that but but impressed so i thought that that makes sense too and he's been getting other work since then he's been writing for uh the whatever the latest star trek show is discovery i think he's he's written some episodes there and then for the upcoming uh pixar movie soul he's the one of the screenwriters there so anyway he he seems to be getting a film career started uh really well with this movie uh yeah what's your what's your impression of the script yeah, I think the play is is interesting in that it is this historical fiction, but the voice of the characters comes through. And, and I think a lot of that is because a lot of the dialogue is sort of taken from things that they said in other places mm, or sort of like yeah. the gist of things they said in other places. And so you get to see this conversation, this argument that was happening within the, within the black community play out within these four different perspectives. And... I was sort of just like so sort of taken with the idea that like, oh, the idea for this play came from a paragraph in a book. Mm-hmm. I went out and I got the book. It's oh, a really? redemption song. Mm-hmm. Um, redemption song, Muhammad Ali in the spirit of the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so like it's chapter one, second paragraph, uh, which picks up after the fight with, with uh, Sonny Liston. After the fight, Clay chose to forego the usual festivities at one of Miami's luxury hotels and headed instead for the black ghetto where he had made camp during training. He spent a quiet evening in private conversation with Malcolm X, the singer Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown, the great Cleveland Browns running back and an early champion of black rights and sports. The next morning after breakfast with Malcolm, Clay met with the press to confirm the rumors that he was involved with the Nation of Islam. And so like the whole play yeah is that's sort of inspired right by yeah. that single paragraph yeah that's um yeah it's the whole thing but it it's you know the the book is really about i think the context of the times and everything that sort of led up to that and then everything that how it, how it all played out in the mm-hmm. 60s after the fact and it kind of goes into well i like i after that immediately like it, it jumps back to like 1908 and um like joe lewis and yeah, it does a lot of things with the history, but it's sort of like just give the context of the times that led up to the nineteen the sixties and that yeah. revolutionary period. Yeah, no, I agree. I, so for me, I think this was just really like educational, really enlightening. I think that the American school system doesn't do enough to teach black history, and so a lot of this was was like new information for me. Like, yeah, I was aware of who Cassius Clay and Malcolm X were. Uh, and Sam Cooke, but uh, actually Jim Brown, I probably couldn't have told you, you know, before watching this, who that was or having having looked it up. Uh, but the, for for the for me, this was a good um, like a primer for for these these four people, and, and yeah, like a jumping off point to want to research more about them. Like I'm immediately after watching this, I got on Wikipedia and was like reading all about all of them. Like wow, I never knew all this stuff. So I just knew like. Muhammad Ali is, you know, the greatest boxer of all time. And, and I knew uh, a bit about Malcolm X, but I didn't, I certainly didn't know anything about their, their characters. And, uh, and that's exactly what this movie tries to depict is like, who are these people and, and kind of, um, 
yeah and then again imagining kind of how did they possibly interact and uh and yeah well it, and it as you're saying brings in so much context about um the past and and looking kind of towards the future too and it feels and this is like a like an overused word but it feels so timely <laughs> like mm-hmm. to uh just the the conversation that the national conversation that has grown and grown um even this year about about race relations and stuff so yeah i really really like this movie a lot i think um well acted across the board uh and then, then one other thing i wanted to mention too about kim powers was that he said something about he 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 misses when movies could just be about people talking <laughs> and that's so that's <laughs> kind of what this movie is and i thought that was a a nice little quote from him about um yeah like there there is a plot to this movie but it's it's kind of slender and, and it's mostly just fleshed out and the things they're saying and, and, and the performances and with that in mind i thought we might just kind of talk through each of the four characters and performances and uh and, and the actors who play them and um kind of break down and even like what their their viewpoint is in the movie and kind of how that plays out because i think it's a really interesting um that for me that's i mean that's what this movie is mostly is the meat of, of what they're talking about so first up, sure. I, I thought we might talk about uh, Cassius Clay. This, so this is right before he um, changed his name to Muhammad Ali uh, as he joins the Nation of Islam. But he, so we we meet him at the beginning, and I I think it's interesting. It kind of depicts him as um, he's very young and he's like uh, he's really funny and charming, and he has he's almost portrayed a little bit as like impressionable. But he's uh, played by Eli Gorey, who he was also part of the Q and a, and this is super interesting is that he uh, has been obsessed with Muhammad Ali for a long time. Uh, this actor, Eli Gorey, and um, he actually prepared to play him in something else and didn't get the part. I can't remember all the details there, but he um, ha- had always been told that he bore a resemblance to him. And as an actor, he thought, you know, one day I'll, I'll play Cassius Clay in something. And uh, it's like put a lot of effort into learning that and developing that. Uh, then didn't get that part, but said to himself, you know, I, I can still use this. Something else will come up, and uh, and this is what came up. So I thought that was a cool kind of full circle story, and he's so so great in this. Um, he has, he, I think most of the funny moments come from him, probably. He's sort of the comedic relief. Um, but, yeah, so he is kind of getting... Um, it, 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 there's some almost a battle over his soul or something as Malcolm X is wanting him to convert to Islam and uh, some of the other characters are telling him you don't need to do that that's not worth your time um, but yeah it's, a, it, it's an interesting interesting thing what did you think about his character uh, I thought he did a really good job with sort of the cadence and sort of trying mm-hmm. to do the voice without it being just like an impersonation yeah um and like you said, he, so he was preparing for the role. He was trying to get this, the role of Malcolm X in a movie that was supposed to be directed by Ang Lee that I guess never got made. Um, and when he didn't get the part, he just knew that like it would, you know, he would have an opportunity to do it someday. So yeah, he just, he kept working on it. And I think that seemed like that never happens. Yeah, you know, I feel like it's wild. And you know, I haven't seen Michael Mann's Ali film. I don't know how he compares to Will Smith, but I thought that he. It was it was like very convincing mm. to me, yeah. And Muhammad Ali is is an interesting figure. Or I guess I don't I don't know if I should call him Cassius Clay because in the in the, in the film he's not Muhammad Ali yet. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting in that he's doing this thing where the way the film portrays it, Malcolm X is courting him to join the the Nation of Islam, but I think he'd he'd already been associated with the nation for a couple of years at this point, but not publicly. So nobody right. knew. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, are you going to come out publicly declare? And then Malcolm X is also knows that there's this growing schism between himself uh, and the nation and what side will Ali be on if that happens. Mm. But Ma- Ali doesn't want necessarily to be this publicly political figure. Yeah. And, it's interesting to me that in the like in the sound clip or in the the press conference that happens the, the next day where he does come out publicly as a member of the Nation of Islam, he says some things that are kind of reminiscent to me of like Charles Barkley in the '90s saying, I, "You know, I'm not a role model," mm-hmm. um, but he he's like this fiercely independent figure who just wants to do things his way and be like not necessarily a part of this thing. And what's interesting is that. Muhammad Ali becomes, regardless of whether or not he wants to be 
this political figure, he kind of gets dragged into it throughout mm-hmm. the decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that that ends up being kind of the the central conflict is between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke, kind of about that kind of thing. It's like, what is the role of a black man in society, a prominent black man in society, to um, you know be outspokenly um, fighting against racial things, and and so he's sort of caught in the middle there. And I think you're right; it shows him uh before the fight uh so at the very beginning of this is before the the fight and then we we don't actually see the fight we i think maybe we hear uh, we do see a, a short amount of the fight that's right mm-hmm. you mentioned the shot overhead um but then the vast majority is is the night after but before the fight he they go and pray together um and he says something about i need my insurance policy or something like that i gotta make sure i pray before the fight uh, and it gives some time to like showing the way the prayer works and he, he doesn't get all the steps right. And he, and Malcolm X has to kind of guide him and correct him a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting thing. It's like showing this, this really prominent person, like at a very early point in their, their career. Uh, but let's talk about, uh, Jim Brown next. He, he again was the one that I, like, I think I'd heard his name and it turns out I'd seen him in, in mm-hmm. acting and things, but he, and he's actually the only one of these four people who's still alive. Um, but he was an NFL player and uh, then became an actor. And so they, at, at this point in the movie, he's kind of on the cusp of that decision uh, where he's he talks about feeling controlled by the NFL and how he can make so much more movie, uh, more money in the movies. And um, I'd seen him in The Dirty Dozen was the, the big one that I remember seeing him in. But it, Have you uh, seen Mars Attacks? I've actually not seen Mars Attacks. No. <laughs> it's, it's always been one. Like, I should watch that someday. But I, I saw that he's in that on IMDb. Um, but he's interesting. So he, it, it kind of opens with him going to visit someone in his hometown, an older white man. And you see like the complicated relationship there that, you know, this, this guy's super nice to him and he's like, Oh, you're great at what you do. And, and is kind of like buttering him up. And then, um, there's some little moment where it's like, Oh, I can come inside and do something. And he's like, well, you know, we don't allow black people in our house. And it's just like, he, he's like being very pleasant in his tone, but, being obviously very blatantly racist and it's just kind of showing i think the 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 temperature of the time and and how um he he must have experienced so much of that kind of thing but um yeah so then it follows him and he and i think he and muhammad ali have an interesting dynamic because they are um kind of famous in the same way in a way something like that they're they're kind of younger and um they seem to have they, they, they go off at one point to uh uh a liquor store or something like that and um the dynamic they have is a little bit more uh, it seems like the other two are like more quote-unquote serious uh, and always want to talk about the kind of the bigger world things but i had an interesting just feeling that those two had a, a funny connection there but yeah what, what do you think about jim brown so just from following football i, I kind of know jim brown's history is the running back of the cleveland back Cleveland Browns and he like a few other athletes like Barry Sanders or someone retired really before they had to hmm. um, for a lot of reasons. But yeah, if nothing else, just because football is a physically it's a, it's a game that takes a physical toll on your body and hmm. acting is a career that doesn't necessarily do that. Yeah. And he also would have more control. So he, he seems to me as a character is he's like the odd man out in this. Yeah. Uh, and even like just flipping through the book that not that this is based on, but like he doesn't come up that often, Yeah, you know? Uh, but he has to, he, it's like he, he's in the play because he was there that night. Yeah. And uh, the actor Aldous Hodge, I think is interesting in that he, um, yeah, you know, he was also an invisible man. Oh yeah, that's right. But, that's uh, where I've seen him most recently. Yeah, it's like the mm-hmm. the cop friend. Yeah, as well as Die Hard with a Vengeance, which was his <laughs> <laughs> acting debut. Yes. Um, Amaya sent me a YouTube clip. I was like, "Guess how this is connected?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And it's it's Aldous Hodge as a little kid in Die Hard Three. That's <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, but uh, he of like of of the four, he's the one that seems the least conflicted and the most sure of what he wants from his life and from his career mm-hmm. and it sort of like he studies Ali in that, in that effort, I think. Yeah. He's, he's probably the voice, the most uh, blatant voice. That's like, why would you join the nation of Islam? Like he, he's kind of the voice of dissent there um, for, for Ali, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm trying to think, cause like, there's not, you know, 
from the other characters, they have moments where they sort of, well, especially from like Cook yeah. and Malcolm X, they have moments where they sort of articulate their vision very mm-hmm. clearly. Yeah. And I don't remember getting that from Jim Brown. Yeah, he's the one I would on a rewatch would want to really key in to see like what's his his main role here. But mm-hmm. yeah, he's he yeah I think you're right in saying he's kind of the odd man out of of the four. Um, he yeah talking about like the the movie industry a little bit, you get a little bit of a glimpse into mm-hmm. kind of his struggles and sort of maybe generally the struggles that that black men were having, you know, with fame and and kind of that that dynamic a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. Let's talk about Malcolm X next. He's played by Kingsley Benadire, who, um, I haven't seen in much else, but he's in several other things. He, uh, played Barack Obama actually in, um, that Showtime special, the Comey rule, which I watched earlier this year. And I think it's pretty good. Uh, and he's, he's barely in it, but he's a, a pretty good Obama, but obviously as Malcolm X, he's very outspoken and he's, you know, he's the one who's courting, uh, Cassius Clay and, and is, the, the conflict with Sam Cooke about you should be doing more to be outspoken and, and fight against racism. Uh, this is like the struggle of our time. And if you're just benefiting from the systems that are there, then you're not doing enough and uh, you're part of the problem. This kind of his, um, the, the, the general way to, to articulate um, where he's coming from. But yeah, so that, that conflict is much of the conflict of this movie uh, and, and leads to some really interesting conversations. And so the, just those kind of dueling worldviews. And so we can talk about Sam Cooke's half of that in, in a minute. But um, yeah, what do you think about uh, Kingsley Benadire's performance here? I think he's he's a good Malcolm X. Uh, I think it probably took me a minute to adjust because mm. in my head I was probably thinking of Denzel Washington. Mm. So, yeah. and that that's kind of a, that's a tough thing yeah. when you have such an iconic portrayal of, a, of an actual person. And then someone else comes along and they're sort of battling against that. But he does, I think, a good job sort of portraying like the conflicted nature of Malcolm X, right? Because Spike Lee's film sort of is is like cradle to grave, the entire life of Malcolm X. And this Mm -hmm. is like pretty much like one section of like the last portion of that movie and really getting to dive into where he was at this time and sort of trying to like separate himself from the nation of Islam, knowing that there are ramifications for that, fearing for his life uh you know the the, this film doesn't doesn't go to the point to where we we see what happens how everything plays Mm -hmm. out but it so it's it takes place on like february 25th 1964 and malcolm x was assassinated february 21st 1965 yeah so about a year like yeah like almost exactly a year to the day uh a year before this mm-hmm. is when this movie takes place. And so it like, if you know that, if you just know the history going in and that's kind of like with all these characters, you know, some of the history going in, there are parts of it that are sort of like feel kind of ominous, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which will come up when we talk about Sam Cooke. Yes. But yeah, I, I th- and I think like, you know, we see him, he's being accompanied by a couple of nation, nation of Islam bodyguards. One mm-hmm. of them played by Lance Reddick. And who seems like very skeptical of Malcolm X and is not does he doesn't doesn't seem like he's like he's there to protect him necessarily as much yeah. as he's there to keep an eye on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, and then there's the younger one too who uh, they have a conversation with at one point, and he that that's an interesting. I actually wrote down some of the dialogue there. This is maybe not exactly right um, because I was you know at the drive-in trying to scribble this down, but um, he asks uh, Cassius Clay. I think asks him. Or maybe Jim Brown asks him if he likes being a Muslim. Um, and he says, yeah, I regret not joining younger. Um, and he talks about what he gets out of it. And he has these people have my back all the time and I'm not, I'm not alone. And then one of the characters, again, I'm not, I can't remember who, I think maybe Jim Brown says, you don't need religion for that. You could just join a gang. And then someone else says, what's the damn difference? And so I thought that was an interesting perspective on um, just at least one person's experience with the nation of Islam and, and kind of why, why he joined, but, um, but yeah, I think so. So Malcolm X, you're right. It has those moments where he's afraid someone's following him and he, there's a moment where he calls home and, um, yeah, like knowing that I didn't know exactly how close to his death this, this took place, uh, before watching it, but I knew it was near the end of his life. 
So there's almost a sense of, you know, he wants to do as much as he can to convince these guys to, to kind of carry the torch, you know, if, if he's fearing for his life at this point. Uh, so I think that's an interesting, an interesting level to it. I don't know if you looked up when Sam Cooke died, but what do yeah. we get to Sam Cooke? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, let's talk about Sam Cooke. Yeah. So I did also did not know uh, his, uh, any of the controversy around his death, but he actually is the first of these four people who died. And for, for context, uh, Muhammad Ali just died in 2016. Um, uh, Jim Brown is still alive, as we mentioned. And, Malcolm X about a year after the events of this movie. And then Sam Cooke, just a few months this from February to December, he was killed. And yeah, so that, that's an interesting point out too. But his, his character, I guess, backing up his character is, is really interesting. He's played by Leslie Odom Jr. Who is, I just, just think he's phenomenal. I, I know him mostly from Hamilton um, as Aaron Burr, but he is so good here too. He gets to sing and, and uh, kind of show off his, his vocal abilities. Uh, but then his his kind of counterpoint to Malcolm X's perspective is that he wants to like beat, beat the system in a way, like infiltrate the system that is there as a musician. That's the music industry for him. And so there's a lot of things about it. You know, Malcolm X is telling him you should uh, be more outspoken. You should be fighting more. Um, You're just a part of, you just go to clubs and entertain white people. Um, you're just like one of the one of the good ones, quote unquote, uh, in the eyes of white people, and you should be uh, fighting because you know this is a, a big problem. And so he, he he has a great speech where he talks about royalties, basically, and and the, the Rolling Stones bought a song that he wrote, and so now he, he says now when white people buy the song, they are giving black people money, uh, and so and he's kind of being subversive in that way, um, and he's saying. I don't want a piece of the pie. I want the recipe. That's one of the quotes there. So that was pretty, pretty interesting. And um, I think he talks too about like, you know, I'm, I'm winning. I'm, I'm beating the system too. If, if I'm beating them at their own game, it kind of, kind of an idea. So yeah, I thought it was an interesting thing. And they, they argue a lot. Yeah. What did you notice that was ominous here? I'm curious. So, you know, it's the use of the song. A change is going to come. And one of the mm-hmm. things that I like is how it plays with the chronology of events. You know, the way it's portrayed in the movie is that they they're in this hotel room. Sam cook says, you know what? I've been working on this song and then he plays it for them. Um, because I think I'm, I recall that happening in the movie. And then like, at you know, after that night in Miami, we see Sam cook on the night show starring Johnny Carson and he mm-hmm. performs the song. Yeah. Um, when in it, what had actually happened, or the, the actual order of events is that he wrote and recorded the song in, I think, January of that year, 64, okay. and performed it in, on February 7th. Wow. Um, so, you know, it plays with the timeline a little bit. Yeah, but it wasn't but right in a way that time. It, yeah. it works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may have, as an event, I think among a lot of uh, people, it may have been overshadowed by the fact that two days later, the Beatles performed on the Ed mm. Sullivan show. So, interesting. But um, yeah, so he only performed the song live once. And I, I was I read this write up that was on NPR for the 50th anniversary. And they talked to Bobby Womack, who was his mm. um, not disciple, but maybe protege is the right word. Mm. But they talked about how when he first played it for Bobby Womack, um, he asked Bobby what he thought about it. And he said, it sounds like death. And he said, that's how, that's how it kind of sounds to me. That's why I'm never going to play it in public. And then Bobby Womack thought about it and he said like, well, it's not like death. It just sounds kind of spooky. And it it is, you know, it is, you know, like even in Spike Lee's Malcolm X film, it's played in the, on the soundtrack when Malcolm X is on his way to his last speech. Mm. So the song does have these overtones that make it sound kind of like ominous. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, he would, you know, Sam Cooke died in December of 1964. So, yeah, less than a year later, he was killed in an incident that it sounds really sort of messy and complicated. I yeah. don't know if you've read into it. I, I just read, again, the Wikipedia kind of article mm-hmm. about it. But, uh, yeah, it's a very he said he said she said kind of thing. Um, and <laughs> black versus white in, in, in that context. And it's uh yeah, it seems really shady, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's strange because, well, we don't have to go into to the details, <laughs> but like, the, the, <laughs> yeah, he was like killed by a mot- uh, hotel manager, essentially. Yeah. Super um, random, seemingly, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I think like Leslie Odom Jr. is a phenomenal actor. Uh, it has been wonderful to see this like the number of people whose careers are taken off post Hamilton. Yeah, um, there's like there's always like there there there's there are always these things like The Wire is another example of something that just spawns the careers of many people. You know, like and it, it creates like this. There's like an alumna of yeah. people from The Wire, like graduated from The Wire, to go on and do a bunch of other things. To Hamilton is having a similar effect. Mm with a number of people who were in the original cast um and it's been really fun to see that happen yeah i agree <laughs> my we love hamilton in my house and my wife listens to it almost every day she loves it so I, and and i love it too but yeah hearing uh he's he's probably my favorite i mean that's a big statement because everyone in hamilton is so great but his performance his his songs are among my favorite songs uh, but yeah, I love seeing that David Diggs is is doing so much. Have you seen Blind Spotting, by the way, with David Diggs? I have. That was um, Blind Spotting was one of the things that I've seen since uh, quarantine that I miss in theaters, and I think it is a really fun movie in the way it plays around um, with different perspectives and things. Mm, you know? Yeah, yeah, I really like it, and they're making a TV show, kind of a spinoff show out of it. So I saw him on Instagram about something that they're working on that right now. So anyway, I'll recommend Blind Spotting. But yes. Um, Back to Sam Cooke. But yeah, there's a couple great scene, scenes where he, uh, there's a flashback scene once to a concert uh, that I think Malcolm X was there watching it. Uh, or one of them mm-hmm. was there. Yes, yeah, Malcolm X. And basically the sound equipment went out and he kept the show going with no microphone. And uh, it shows that it's kind of a powerful moment. And Malcolm X is, is, is really thinks so highly of him. That's, that's what's so interesting. I think about it is like he disagrees fundamentally with, um, the way Sam Cooke handles racial issues, but he thinks really highly of him as a, as a person and as a, a figure. Um, and he, so that he, he says a few times, something like, like your voice is so powerful. If you would just use it differently, uh, it could be huge. And so I think that's a really interesting part of that. Yeah. Well, I would just say like that scene that you reference is a good example of how you can take something like a play and make it really cinematic. Mm-hmm. And it's also, if you watched lovers rock is really reminiscent of, of uh, something that Steve McQueen does in that film. I haven't watched it yet, but very soon I'm going to, but so I'll be watching <laughs> for that. But um, another musical thing that's really interesting is um, I think this is also Malcolm X. Like I hate that. I'm keep saying, I think it was this, but it's been yeah, a few months, <laughs> but um, who talks about the Bob Dylan song uh, blowing mm. in the wind. And he, he listens to it like they play it on the radio i think and he says something like like they, he kind of talks through some of the the lyrics at the beginning of it and he's like he's talking about the black experience in in a way um but this is some white guy on the radio and he i as i was kind of i listened to that song as i was kind of preparing for this and then found out sam cook has a cover version on one of his albums so that's streaming you can go listen to it and so i thought that was a cool way that maybe kemp powers is almost saying like you know, possibly here's a fun theory of how um, the seed could have been planted for Sam Cooke to want to perform this song. Uh, the Sam Cooke version obviously sounds very different than the Bob Dylan version, but um, it's uh, it's pretty cool. It's, that's uh, blowing in the wind. Yeah, no. And th- that apparently really happened. Like really? Sam Cooke really did. It's reference in the book okay. how Sam Cooke was taken with that song and really thought like I should have written that or like one of us mm. should have written that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, so Malcolm has some line about this is about the oppressed having to work harder to be recognized. Uh, and he said, that's kind of the core idea in the song that, that really resonates with the, the experience he's having as a black man. Speaking of Sam Cooke and musical performances, his opening scene. So this is another example of Regina King's, I think strong direction. Uh, he's playing at the Copacabana actually. It was kind of cool. It's like a famous club and he is playing to an all white audience, which apparently was not uncommon for him. And uh, there's a shot though at the, when he's on stage where just the camera angle makes him look really tiny in the frame. And this white crowd is huge in the frame and it just feels really intimidating. And so I thought that was a cool way to kind of set up his character that um, he's, he's fearless in a way that he's not afraid to go do this. And he does, he sees a strength in that. And, and that comes out later in the discussion. Uh, with everyone so i thought that was another nice directorial touch yes there yeah there are a number of scenes before the film starts properly that sets up i don't know if they're in the play or not but they kind of open up the film so we get like uh little vignettes of each of the four main characters yeah. and i'm trying to like like 
the Jim Brown one just like makes an impression. You know, you can't forget that, yeah. and mm-hmm. like just like the way the disappointment in that. I think the Muhammad Ali one. I think he like loses a fight for Malcolm X. It shows his wife is watching him on TV, and then he comes home. Mm-hmm. One thing that Sam Cooke says about his uh, kind of the the conflict that he and Malcolm X are having is a little bit of a conversation between them. He says, uh, "Don't you think that me commanding my own business destiny?" is better than just making people mad. It's something along those lines. And then um, Malcolm X says back to him uh, something about he's he's too bougie. He says, you bougie people don't understand what's really at stake. Or I think he says bourgeois. He wouldn't have said bougie at that yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you bourgeois people don't understand what's really at stake. Uh, that that kind of nicely encapsulated the the heart of their, their conflict. Uh, yeah, just really well written. You can, you can kind of tell like, Kent Powers has a, a knack for dialogue as a screenwriter. Obviously, like that's that's a lot of what I mean as a playwright. Um, but I think that that really comes through. Like that really is the strongest thing about this. Is the the dialogue is really really well well done. Yeah, I mean, I think as as a play overall, I just think it's a phenomenally well piece of written work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I just think is how much of the dialogue and the debate and the discussions seem to have come just directly from the, the people themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so like with Bob Dylan, I'm not going to read the whole paragraph cause it's quite long, but you know, it talks about blowing in the wind and how it was covered by a number of different people, including Sam cook. And then it says cook remarked to friends that it was an embarrassment for black performers that it had been a white boy who first dared talk about race and politics and popular music. In January 1964, he wrote and recorded A Change Is Gonna Come, perhaps the first masterpiece of socially conscious soul. Yeah, so like that that conflict, as it's depicted in the film, came right from, you know, the actual history. Yeah. You know, that's not just supposition. That it actually happened that way. And I think one of the things that I like about this film and the, the various discussions is that it shows how a lot of the conversations that we're having today, this is not the first time they've had them. They were doing this in the 60s. And of course, in the 60s, they were it was coming after things that happened in the 50s and, and before that, the 30s and, and the 20s and so on and so forth, you know, for all of time. Uh, and a lot of times when I hear or read activists and people today talk, there's this there's like a recency bias. It's not mm-hmm. just just activists. It's people in general, I think, have this recency bias where they act as though history started either when they were born or when mm. they became politically aware. Yeah. And what I like about this film is that it's this opportunity for people to sit back and be like, okay, we're, it's the same struggle. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. absolutely. There are areas in which we've made process. There are areas in which we may, we've gone backwards, but we're still, it's, it's the same struggle as it's always been. Mm. And, you know, it's always been a tumultuous time and that hasn't changed. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it like it totally has resonance today, and I think that's uh, one of the just powerful things about either watching older films. I've talked about like watching classic films and why I love it is because it does give that picture of a time period. Or watching films that that accurately or, or with um, just time films that depict a, a previous time with an eye for for you know kind of the spirit of the time and uh, what things were like politically and that kind of thing. It, it does. I think it, it can open eyes in a way that can be really powerful because yeah, you're right. Like I tend to think that uh, things have only been the way they are for a short amount of time, but, but this just reminds me again, like, yes, this has been this way for a long time. Um, and I think especially for younger generations who might be able to watch this and, and see uh, like, obviously this is really educational for me, but imagine like a high school student seeing this or uh, I, 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 that kind of thing kind of, I find inspiring that film can make a difference in that way. And, and as to the, like the way this was adapted from real stuff, as you're saying, like so much of it clearly came straight from their actual words. And I think that's like, that's the way to adapt history, I think is, I don't know, ethically or something is to uh, be as, as close to the real thing as you can. And then be forthcoming about like yeah this, this is a fictionalized account but here's what i did to to try to be as close as possible uh which stands in contrast to a lot of historically made movies like speaking of green book that won the oscar um that <laughs> that not only has like some people have a lot of issues with 
the racial discussions in that movie and the way racism is depicted and rightfully so i agree with a lot of that but also that the enormous liberties it takes with history i've just done a little research around that and like the family of uh the character in that is very unhappy with it because it um paints him in a very different light than than was reality for a story that <laughs> was created to make white people feel better like it's a, it's just a whole big mess but anyway we don't have to talk about green book but i think that's in such a contrast to this which someone who first of all screenwriter of color that probably makes a big difference uh but has so much respect for the the history of this and for the people involved and is staying so true to it and yet then offering this artful um creative rendition of of what this might have been that's it's like it's clear that he he doesn't expect anyone to believe this is exactly what happened just in the way it's it's written and anyway i just have a lot of respect for for kent powers and i'm curious to see what he does next i'm really anxious to watch soul in a few weeks as that's gonna stream soon but um anyway yeah i really really like this movie yeah i hope everybody watches it and i think that one of the one of the things that i noted I think as I was watching it, I think I sent Michael Carpenter a text message. Um, was just that you you can get away with a lot in theater because this, this, it did start as a play, and I think that there's a tradi- more of a tradition in, in theater of openly playing with history, right? Mm-hmm. Probably and like whether whether or not you're just talking about like different stagings of plays and things, like there's just more creativity i yeah. think in theater I mean, when it comes look to at approaches to history like hamilton like which mm-hmm. obviously is based on history but again it's like it knows no one in the audience thinks this is exactly how it really happened go on though right yeah so like you know if you made a movie if hamilton were a movie first hmm. and people there were i think there would be a lot of writing like thomas jefferson was was not was not was not black you know i think that would that would come up a lot it would be like a right? problem for people like, yeah yeah people tend to be really literal with mm. movies and i think like you know you see it with like various websites and things that, mm. that like movies cinema sins or something mm. where they're, they're really nitpicky and i think that and part of it i think it's just like the way that in theater or at least with this particular this play in particular like there's a lot of talk about like yeah i made this up and it's like very open and honest about yeah. that mm-hmm. You know, and like talking about the process and how they came to it. And maybe there's just like more of a history of that in theater than I think there is a lot of times in movies. Well, that is One Night in Miami that is streaming on Amazon Prime starting January 15th. Um, Again, highly recommend everyone check it out. It's going to be, I can pretty much say it's going to be in my top 10 of of 2020. Um, The question is how high. I'm still working on that. (laughs) I have a lot of things to still try to watch by the end of the year. But um, yes, very much recommend this. And it sounds like you do also, Omaya. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Omaya, for for coming back and and discussing this with us. I'm sure you'll be back on the podcast very soon. Uh, But until then, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes now, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. If you want to support Art House Garage, you can leave a rating or review in your podcast app, or you can buy an Art House Garage t-shirt, or actually we have some hats too. That's at arthousegarage.com shop. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter at arthousegarage.com subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage and all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.